This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm at peace today. For uh, for one reason, as we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com. I'm Tyler Mon. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. Why are you at peace today? I'm so, I'm glad you're at peace. We're I'm a little surprised. But, right. But. We just had like a 10-minute off-air conversation, which I was very much not. But now that we have started recording, I'm going to play this role. Um, we're supposed to, you know, as journalists, uh, we're... we're unbiased and we're uh we give an even hand to the teams that we evaluate and and all that but of course we grew up as sports fans so we have our allegiances uh everybody across the milb.com spectrum if you follow them on social media you know who everybody's team is you know same grew up in massachusetts he's a red sox fan uh i grew up in denver um and i will say that as of february 5th 2020 I feel very comfortable being back in a position where I have already given up on the Rockies this year. It's so familiar. It feels like an old sweater that I can just snuggle into. Like the last few years, having expectations and hope, not comfortable. So now after this trade yesterday, I uh, don't have to believe in a one single positive moment with them. And I feel very comfortable. It's it's good to set expectations ahead of time because if you feel comfortable now, the only way to go is up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there, there could be some reasons for surprise. I think MLB <laughs> Network, didn't they name Trevor Story as the number one shortstop in baseball? Yeah, and I'm sure after week? a very public feud between uh, your general manager and the arguably best player in franchise history, I'm sure Trevor Story is just itching to sign long term here now. Yeah. It's all, it's all going uh, great. I don't know. I, there there could be reasons for optimism if you want to find them. I know a lot of people in Denver don't, and that's fully fine and, and the way it is. But, uh, yeah, this week is is tough to, to live in the NL West. I was thinking of Padres fans this week, actually. Right. Because you go oh, from – windows opening. Eh, yeah. Window. Mookie Betts could be coming to the Padres, and he's the, the next big piece of the puzzle, even for a year, uh, before all the prospects come up. And now not only is he not coming, but he's going to the team that has won 100 plus games again and has run away with the division again and is only getting better. Uh, And that's got to be a gut punch. Yeah. um, You know, it's kind of like, I mean, Grant Brisby would not say this. One of the best baseball writers on the planet, of course, the uh, now voice of the athletic San Francisco writing about the Giants in Major League Baseball. But I would say right now, the least stressful position uh, for anybody in the National League West is being a Giants fan because it's like new manager, front office changes, all of that. They're moving stuff around in the ballpark. They're bringing the the outfield walls in. They're moving the bullpens, all that. Like, you don't really have to worry right now. You got a little bit of a leash. Like, obviously, it's going to be more than likely a kind of ugly season. You got to watch Madison Bumgarner make starts in an Arizona Diamondbacks uniform. But, um, you know, for the rest of us, 
D-backs go out. They get Bumgarner. They get Starling Marte. Padres have this wave of prospects coming up. Uh, the Rockies have done literally nothing, and that's not like a ah, it's you know a joke. They have literally not spent a single dollar on a major league contract this offseason. Um, and then uh, and then there's the Dodgers who were quiet and yesterday blew up the baseball calendar uh, on February fourth, and we will talk about that here coming up uh, in just a moment as we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show. Thanks for joining us and uh, getting set to talk all things minor league baseball. You can get in touch with this podcast at milb.com. Uh, we haven't gotten an email in a while that wasn't trying to shill us like you know rebar from a factory in, in <laughs> china we get those emails all the time um but uh, we haven't gotten a, a question a thought a comment a concern anything so get in touch we're lonely podcast at milb.com um which is kind of funny because our our listener numbers jump like every episode but uh we're quiet on the emails just someone send an email and say hi what yeah just we, we just check that. in um hey, you know maybe we're good yeah, maybe next week we'll we'll take a listener question. If you guys have one you want to yeah. send in, uh, next week will be right around the time of pitchers and catchers. Uh, that is usually when our listenership spikes. spikes. I would say is is when people really want to get interested in the season and and all that. So uh, yeah, if, if you guys want to send in a question, we will read it on air next week. We will make it one of the strikes. We will, if we if tons more happens if more trades happen and we need to make it a foul ball we'll make it a foul ball but i'd like to have a reader question on the show next week so send in what you guys have maybe we'll make the whole show out of reader questions who knows but uh they make the yeah, whole plane be- out of the reader questions exactly <laughs> i like it um before we dive in for this week's episode, uh, just announced last fall, more than 20 new minor league teams will join the Copa de la Diversión chase in 2020. MILB's Hispanic Fan Engagement Initiative, fresh off its second full season, celebrates the cultural contributions of Hispanic communities across over 90 minor league cities. Through culturally significant on-field identities, in-stadium accommodations and entertainment options, and community impact, COPA celebrates the Hispanic community whose love for baseball has driven the game forward. Visit MILB.com slash fans slash COPA or follow Minor League Baseball on social media at MILB to find out more about each identity and the initiative. And with that, we'll kick off three strikes on this week's episode of the show. Big time news yesterday in a trade that uh, I would imagine you probably heard of. Weirdly enough, really only involves one player for our purposes, uh, and that player is baseball's 83rd overall ranked prospect, right-handed pitcher Bruce Argraderall, who is on the move from the Minnesota Twins to the Boston Red Sox as part of a three-team blockbuster deal that will send the 2018 most valuable player of the American League, Mookie Betts, to the Los Angeles Dodgers. There are a whole lot of other moving parts uh, in this deal, but the one for our purposes, Gradwell, an interesting acquisition uh, in that deal. There's so much more about this trade, and it's kind of weird for us that we have to focus on that one small part of it because this is a a potentially not just a year, but like several year shaping deal for some teams as we discuss in Strike One this week, Sam. Yeah, and, and I I'll get to Gradwell in a second because we do we should discuss him. Um, you know, he is the prospect here. He, he is. I think Matthew Liberatore was the only top 100 prospect moved this offseason before this trade uh, when he went to the St. Louis Cardinals. So the idea of a top 100 prospect moving should get me excited and and willing to talk about those people. But I do want to put that off to the side here for a moment and just note that Mookie Betts and David Price were moved to the Los Angeles Dodgers 
at the time of our recording this, it's not official yet, uh, but all the particulars seem pretty much ironed out. There might be some other minor parts still moving around out there. I think Peter Gammons just tweeted out that maybe international bonus money is moving or maybe a random draft pick or something like that. But uh, it seems like we know what's happening here, and that's Mookie Betts, David Price, and a lot of their money uh, going to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Alex Verdugo and Bruiser Gratterall going to the Boston Red Sox and Kenta Maeda going to the Minnesota Twins. Uh, it's fascinating that somebody of Mookie Betts' caliber can move and only one top 100 prospect gets moved in the process, and none of whom comes from the team that is acquiring him. What the Dodgers are essentially giving up in this trade, and unless there's some other things that we don't know about quite yet, are is Alex Verdugo for Mookie Betts and David Price. That's that's insane on paper. That's insane yeah. in real life. Uh, I know that Mookie Betts is scheduled to make $27 million this year, and he's basically a one-year rental. He's still a player who, as Tyler mentioned, is one year removed from winning the MVP award. Uh, according to Fangraphs, he was worth 10.9 war in 2018. He was worth 6.8 war in 2019. 42 war over his first six seasons of Major League Baseball. Uh, that was already 14th all-time for the Boston Red Sox, ahead of legends like Babe Ruth, Nomar Garciaparra, Carlton Fisk. Uh, he had already cemented his place in Boston franchise history. Uh, for him to be moved basically to shed salary is fascinating to me. Uh, I know, like we said, the Red Sox do get a, a promising prospect back here, but this should feel like a blockbuster from all sides. It doesn't feel that way from our side, uh, just because only one of the top 100 prospects stayed. Gavin Lux is still with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Dustin May is still with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Josiah Gray, Cabert uh, Ruiz, Jeter Downs, all five of their top 100 prospects still in the LA system. We'll get into that in strike two. Um, but what are the Red Sox getting in Brewster Gratterall? We'll keep the focus there now that that is out of my system. Uh, Gratterall, a guy who can hit the triple digits. He did that last year with the Twins. He reached the major leagues as a reliever. Uh, it's 100 miles an hour with sync, which is fascinating. If you get a chance to watch one of his 101-mile-an-hour pitches, it's crazy how it looks with movement and that velocity coming out of his hand. Uh, he has a plus slider as well that he used to great effect in the majors. The Twins had already said this offseason that they were expecting to keep him in a bullpen role, potentially stretch him out from there, but – uh, they had designs on him sticking in the majors as a reliever and then potentially, you know, if if he was still effective there and they needed a starter down the road, they would move him back there. Uh, I fully expect if the Red Sox are requiring him and he is the big prospect of this deal, that they will probably send him down to AAA Pawtucket and try to keep him stretched out as a starter, try to get him into that ceiling of – a number three or maybe even number two starter if everything clicks with that velocity and that those off-speed pitches. Uh, you know, the Red Sox right now, not the greatest system. It, that's why a lot of people were trying to argue for this deal happening is like, oh, it's a chance to rebuild the system. That's not what happened, obviously. Gratterall is a great pickup. Uh, he's likely to become their number two prospect or actually number one prospect ahead of Tristan Cassis. Cassis is number 85 overall. Bobby Dahlbeck is just outside the top 100. So the, the system does get a little bit better. They do need starting pitching help. Uh, if Gratterall ends up 
working in that role, that would be great. This is a team that has not really developed starting pitching since Eduardo Rodriguez. Uh, but in terms of what – if you would have told me the Red Sox are trading Mookie Betts for sure, uh, I would have thought it would have been a little bit more of a system-building swap than this. Uh, again, I know people are trying to make case about financials, and this allows them to get under uh, the luxury tax for the first time in a couple of years and avoid even harsher penalties. That's fine, but in terms of what's happening on the baseball field, the Red Sox are a worse team than they were uh, just 24 hours ago. Uh, their system is not that markedly better, and it might be a year until they can really prove, hey, the reason why we did this was so we had more fly- financial flexibility. Here's us spending that money or going out and getting more expensive players. But really, when you look at next year's offseason – Who's the big free agent that's going to be on the market? It's Mookie Betts, and they would have had an entire window in which only they could negotiate with him. Now that's gone with him moving to the Dodgers. Uh, So if you're a Dodgers fan, hey, this is another chance to get that one step closer to the World Series. Uh, I know they need starting pitching help. That's not quite uh, what Mookie Betts is going to provide. Price could do that, although he was dealing with wrist injuries last year, and his stuff certainly came down based on that. Uh, but you have a chance to get a, a, a guy who arguably could now be the favorite to win the NL MVP award. And all you have to give up is a controllable outfielder who may have been your fourth outfielder anyways. Uh, that's, a, that's a deal that that Dodgers front office had to make and they leapt at the, the chance. And, uh, you know, this is a team that I think now going into 2020 is probably the prohibitive World Series favorite. Um, I just because I have to play the pro wrestling heel here. Um, we see all this stuff on uh, on the social media about uh, you know it's a day that the Red Sox front office abandoned fans and it's a dark day for Boston sports and blah blah blah. You won a World Series like eighteen months ago. You've got a team in the finals or in the championship game of like every league every year. So I speak for all of us when I say eh, we don't really feel sorry for you. No, I'm not saying people should feel bad for Red Sox fans or or something like that. Uh, It it doesn't send a great signal to fans. Right, right. When it's, you know, if they had gotten that big prospect package back, they could be like, okay, hey, listen, we know what the system is right now. We know how how the farm looks. This is us investing in the future in results you can see. You can go to Pawtucket and see a Brewster Gratterall or if they had gone out and gotten one of Josiah Gray or Jeter Downs, hey, go to Portland and see those guys and know that the farm system is better. The the future might look a little brighter. Uh, This is not that. Uh, This is, hey, we were a little bit – more financially flexible now so maybe we'll be able to make a move come next offseason but that's not coming anytime soon raising that financial flexibility pennant uh headed into the 2020 season uh the los angeles dodgers are not that uh and we move into strike two this week the dodgers have added obviously at least one if not two gigantic pieces depending on how david price is uh in hollywood this year and i'm not sure that that means the dodgers are done and that is our topic for strike two the dodgers right now seem to be kind of moving away from you know we see the the chicago cubs and the boston red sox and uh some of these other formerly major spending teams that now are reining all of that in and the dodgers are still chasing that golden 
uh calf what is it the golden yeah that seems like it works why not <laughs> um because they have not yet won that world series and continue to uh to make moves to try to go for it do they have something else in them for strike two do you see another trade uh as a possibility for the dodgers especially in light of the fact as you said that they held on to all that prospect talent I mean, the potential is still there. I mean, what they decided to do is basically spend financial capital uh, to go get some of the, and they wanted to do that anyways. I mean, I remember at the winter meetings, Dave Roberts saying, this is as aggressive as I feel like we've been. We're, we're some real players in, in some of these moves. And then you see Garrett Cole go to the Yankees and Anthony Rendon go across town to the Angels. And uh, so it seemed like they were willing to to spend money to get players and, and that didn't work out. And then all of a sudden you find out Mookie Betts is available. So you go and get him via trade, but what you're essentially doing is taking on a lot of his contract. I know the Red Sox are sending some money to help with the price contract and the bets contract, but still what they're doing is just taking on that. So they have all these, and I hate calling players assets, but they have these players that have value, uh, you know, prospects who are still controllable I, I don't think they want to trade a gavin lux or a dustin may because they see those guys as immediate contributors in some role coming out of 2020 but uh you know when you still have Kbert ruiz and jeter downs and josiah gray all of whom will start at the upper minors but uh you know aren't going to be of immediate help and might be more helpful on the trade market yeah the, the dodgers should still be looking at other upgrades what what can they do uh, to really push this team over the edge. The starting pitching is, I think, what immediately needs the most help. Clayton Kershaw and Walker Buehler are as solid as a 1-2 as you're really going to find in baseball, obviously. But Price has questions as the 3. Alex Wood has questions at the 4. Julio Urias is their 5 right now, and he has a history of, of several injuries uh, going back a few years. So uh, would they like to go out and get – you know, maybe a Mike Clevenger or something like that. They have the assets to do that, as good as Clevenger is, and the Indians trying to figure out what identity they're going to have. I know Francisco Lindor has been rumored on the market, and the Indians may be trying to get rid of him or being open to trading him. Yes, how does that work out for the Dodgers when they already have Corey Seager and Gavin Lux could potentially be at second base? And they have Justin Turner and they have Max Muncie and they have a plethora of infield options. They'd make it work if they get Francisco Lindor. Francisco Lindor makes that team better and they might need whatever marginal difference they can get. Um, maybe somebody like Chris Bryant is being rumored to be on the market still. Uh, I, I know, Tyler, you'd hate to do this. And I know the Rockies front office would hate to do this. But maybe they check in about Nolan Arenado. Uh, Turner said when Anthony Rendon was on the market, hey, I'm willing to move across the diamond to first base to allow somebody else to play third. Brian or Arenado re represent upgrades for sure. Um, maybe they try out and, and get one of those guys and, and deplete the top 100 prospect hall that they have right now. The system would definitely get worse, but the major league team would be that much better. Uh, and they could still do this. I'm not saying this isn't prediction, uh, but based on what they were willing to give away and what they actually had to give away to get in Mookie Betts and David Price and what they still have left, the potential for another blockbuster is certainly there. And, uh, yeah, don't trade Nolan in the division, please. <laughs> you would think, like, it, it's possible, but it's something that the, the price would have to be even heightened further. 
My uh, conspiracy theory is uh, that Nolan, off of all of the fresh rage that he feels with how his offseason is gone, uh, he's got a full no trade clause. My conspiracy theory is that he refuses any deal the Rockies try to include him in, uh, opts out after 2021, thus giving the Rockies nothing in compensation for him, and then he goes and signs with the Dodgers anyway. It's my conspiracy theory. Okay. If you really, if you really wanted to stick the knife in, that's how you do it. But he also seems like a good dude, so I don't know if he's as vengeance-minded as my conspiracy would have you believe. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, with that, we'll move on to strike three. Prospect projections continue. The American League West is up on the site. Yeah, this one was actually really interesting to, to watch in full time. One thing we have not talked about, and again, because the trade isn't official yet, we still don't know exactly what's happening. But what's rumored to be happening and seems – somewhat set in stone is that jock peterson as part of this all these dodgers moves will be traded to the los angeles angels uh so he gets to stay in southern california um but what i find fascinating about that is because just before that deal rumored to have gone down uh i wrote about the al west rookie projections for this year and what stood out to me is that joe adele the number six overall prospect in the game right now, who we all really believe in. He, he could be a five-tool player pretty easily given the way you know he's looked in the first couple of years of his career. Uh, he could be plus power. He could certainly be plus run tool. He's got a good arm. He's going to cover tons of ground in the grass. He would probably be a center fielder in any other system, but he's going to be playing next to Mike Trout someday, so it's possible he moves over to right or left. We'll see how it goes. Uh, he ended last year at AAA, so I thought, okay, the projections are going to look fairly good for him. They actually didn't look as standout as somebody like Adele's caliber, I would say. Uh, Steamer 600, over a full major league season, 600 plate appearances, believes Joe Adele would hit 241, 295, 405. That would be a WRC plus of 85, so that's about 15% below the major league average. And his war over a full season would only be 0.3 right now. A lot of that is because he did struggle at the end of last year at AAA Salt Lake, especially at a time when offense was taking off at AAA. Uh, he did not have that great of a season with the Bees. Uh, certainly turned things around in the Arizona Fall League. I'm not sure if Steamer takes that into consideration or not. Um, but in terms of our purposes for where his stock sits, uh, he certainly looked a lot better in the AFL. And Tyler, you saw him playing for Team USA, looked good there as well playing against advanced competition on an international stage. Um, but during, at Salt Lake over 27 games, he hit 264 with a 676 OPS. Uh, not great. And when I think the average PCL OPS last year was above 800. So that's going to affect the projections. The projections are only really looking at the raw data, the raw numbers. Uh, so what I thought was going to happen was, you know, the, the Angels looked like they were kind of keeping an outfield spot open for Joe Adele. Mike Trout's going to be your opening day center fielder. That we know. Justin Upton can play left field. They had Brian Goodwin and Michael Hermosillo, who could potentially be a little bit of a platoon there and right until Adele was ready. Uh, I thought that was a sign that they believed in Adele, that they thought he could show major league readiness relatively quickly, allow Goodwin and Hermosillo to do some interesting things, but not be the everyday solution. Now they go out and get Jock Peterson. And I think that allows more development time for Joe Adele, uh, which is too bad because I, I do think he probably only needs a month or two at AAA before his tools show that he needs a new challenge. Um, but getting somebody like Jock Peterson who probably should play every day, maybe Jock Peterson 
gets some looks at first base. He's done that in the past. Uh, I know Albert Pujols is at first, and uh, he's going to be playing first base when Shohei Otani is DHing. But uh, what this essentially does is, you know, the Angels are probably looking at their own internal projections and seeing Adele is a little bit further than they would have liked. Uh, going out and getting Jock Peterson allows them to keep him in the PCL a little bit longer. And we'll have to see if we're having this conversation in May or June when Adele has an OPS above 900 and he's stealing bases and hitting home runs. Okay, now what do the Angels do? Uh, but for a team that's trying to actually go for it, they signed Anthony Rendon. Uh, we don't know what the Astros are going to be like this year. They're really either going for a wild card spot or maybe to be a surprise against the Astros and the A's and the AL West. Um Maybe they can't afford to keep a spot open for Joe Adele, and they need production out of that spot right away. So uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that, how that's going to work out in the spring, how many at-bats Adele is going to get against somebody like Jock Peterson and those other two guys I mentioned. But that's fascinating. One thing I I also want to point out from this column, which was a little disappointing because if I was going to write about AL West major league-ready players – it was going to be the A's triumvirate of Jesus Luzardo, A.J. Puck, and Sean Murphy. Uh, unfortunately, and this is understandable, but Luzardo and Puck got reliever projections. Uh, they only pitched in relief last year for the A's when they made the majors. Therefore, they get reliever projections now. Both are expected to be major league starters. I would have liked to have seen what the projections would be if they were to get 200 innings. Uh, the A's have said they're going to have to be cautious with innings for both of those guys because of their injury histories. Puck has Tommy John already on his resume. Uh, Luzardo has some other things that he's worked on. He had Tommy John before that anyway. Um, so we'll see how the innings are going to shake out for those guys. But when you're looking at this and wondering – why is the lead not Luzardo and Puck when we know that their ceiling could be considerate and that they're likely to start the year in the major leagues? That's just the reason we can only go off the data that, that we're given. And unfortunately, in the case of those two, it was uh, reliever data. And that is strike three on this week's episode of the show before the show. Coming up, we're going to head to the Pittsburgh Pirates organization where we find the eighth-ranked prospect in that system, right-handed pitcher Brennan Malone, who joins the show. Uh, First-round pick of the Arizona Diamondbacks last year, now a member of the Pirates system, and uh, he got a chance to talk to Sam a little while ago. I feel like I should clarify, uh, every time we have a show and we do an interview now, it probably seems like I just leave Sam hanging, and I I feel bad about that. Uh, it's just a weird time of year. I have all these other broadcasting commitments, and every time Sam will nail down an interview and be like, hey, are you available at this time? And I'm like, no, I have to do a radio show for something else, or I'm traveling and I'm on a flight to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or some such nonsense. So I don't want you all to think that I am just negligent in my co-hosting duties, and I'm sorry, Sam. Well, it's, it's not. I mean, I feel like I should clear the air from my side as well. This is not. <laughs> Me being like, okay, so I'm just going to take the interview, Tyler. You you go off and do whatever you want. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also me, you know, I have my schedule. Tyler has his schedule. And it's usually me asking Tyler, hey, can you do this on my schedule? Um, So I'm always asking unfair things out of Tyler anyways. Uh, And this interview, uh, which I did with Brandon Malone, which was really great. And I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it. But – was scheduled for one time and then Brendan Malone texted me. He was like, actually, I'm getting in a bullpen around then, which is cool. It's the off season. He's got to get ready for the spring. Definitely. You know, we're working around guys own 
uh, off-season preparatory schedules ourselves. Uh, so we had to move some things around. Tyler wasn't available then. I was. I took it. But uh, hopefully it's enjoyable anyways. It's just me and Brendan Malone. Uh, but we talk about trades that he's already gone through uh, and how he's preparing for his first full season. And now you know the rest of the story. As Paul Harvey would have said. Whatever, Brennan Malone's coming up next. Joining us on this week's Minor League Baseball podcast, the show before the show, is the newest number eight prospect in the Pittsburgh Pirates system. I say newest in every sense of the form because he's just joined it a week ago. Uh, is Brennan Malone. Brennan, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good, good. Thanks again so much for joining us. So the reason why we wanted to have you on the show this week is you were kind of in the news last week. Uh, We talked about this trade for our listeners last week. Now you're here. You moved from the Arizona Diamondbacks, the team that drafted you 33rd overall last year. Uh, In your first offseason, they trade you to the Pittsburgh Pirates along with Leover Paguero. Uh, for Starling Marte. First off, let's just start with what was your reaction to the trade? How did you find out? Um, I mean, my first reaction was kind of like in shock. I mean, of course, you're not exactly expecting to be traded, uh, especially in your first year, especially after your first offseason. But um, after that, it was just excitement. I'm I'm really ready to get uh, started with them and uh, hopefully progress my career further. And how did you find out first? Was it through your agent? Was it through Twitter? I know that happens increasingly yeah. these days. Uh, how did you find out about it? Yeah, I was actually just finishing my workout, just hanging in the locker room. And uh, like you said, I was, just, I was just on Twitter and scrolling through, and I see my name and uh, that there's trade rumors. And about 30 minutes later, the coaches call me into their office and um, pretty much tell me that I'm going to Pittsburgh and uh, that, that they're waiting on me to – waiting on um, Sterling Marte to, to finish up some physical stuff. And uh, about 20 minutes after that, it was it was final. Hmm. And when you say coaches, were you already at the D-backs facility getting ready for spring? Yeah, I was. I was at early camp uh, doing some training and getting my arm ready for the spring. Uh, so, yeah, I found out right after our uh, workout for the day. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting from a logistical point of view because sometimes we talk to guys in July right before the trade deadline who have to switch minor league teams. You were already at the facility. A lot of people think in the offseason guys just go home, but that wasn't that. So where did you go from the D-backs facility? Did you go straight to the Pirates, or or where are you now in terms of limbo? Uh, I actually went back home for a little bit. Uh, I don't report to the 13th, so I have a little bit of off time. Uh, so I'm pretty much just back home in Charlotte, just uh, working out and getting my arm ready, starting to throw some bullpens here in the next uh, hour or so. So um, for the most part, I'm just hanging out until uh, I'm, it's time to report. Hmm. And how does that change other than just location? Uh, how does that change your offseason preparations? Did the Pirates give you any special instructions yet? Or um, you know, how did things change when you went from throwing those bullpens in front of Arizona coaches to now back home in Charlotte? Uh, well, I mean, nothing's changed. I mean, this is honestly my first bullpen that I'm about to throw here, so I haven't thrown too many bullpens in front of them. Uh, but it really doesn't change anything. I mean, I'm going to uh, continue the stuff that I'm doing, the, the stuff that the Diamondbacks gave me, because I feel like uh, no matter what, I feel like I'm going to be prepared for the season and I'm going to uh, come with something. 
Hmm. Yeah, and just to kind of get back to what we would ask you if you had we had you on any other week. This is your first off season. Uh, you mm -hmm. are preparing potentially to throw 90, 100 innings for the first time, uh, trying to go from April to September. Where are you in your preparation? What are you working now on when you're trying to throw and, and get prepared for that first full season? Uh, pretty much right now, just ramping up my arm, getting it hot, uh, rubbing off the dust a little bit. Uh, but I'm really trying to get my secondary pitches down and, and just get good consistency in all my pitches and good movement. So uh, pretty much right now it's just command and just getting the consistency of my secondary pitches and uh, just pretty much overall just kind of ease into it and not not try to rush into it too much because it's going to be a long season. And uh, what did you know about the Pirates before this trade? Uh, like we said, you were basically a first-round pick, 33rd overall last year. I'm sure a lot of teams are sniffing around you at the IMG Academy. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you were they interested in you at all? Did you know much about the system, and how much have you learned just in the week since? Uh, well, I mean, being at IMG, I was like five minutes down the street from the Pirates facility, so I mean, they came to see me a lot. Um, so I already had kind of an idea that they had an eye on me before the draft, and I don't know how much that plays into this trade going on, but. Um, I know that they had a lot of eyes on me and that they were um, thinking about taking me in the first round this, this past draft. And, um, but, you know, it's just the way it worked out. And, uh, yeah, in the conversations since, what have, how many conversations have you had since? Or have they just basically said, hey, welcome to the organization, report on the 13th, that's it. Uh, what have the context of those conversations been like with Pittsburgh so far? Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, the first couple of guys that reached out was Chris Archer and Cole Tucker. They texted me welcoming wow. me to the organization. And uh, then I got a call from the coordinator uh, welcoming me to the organization and kind of giving me all the details about when do I need to report, living situations, that type of stuff. So uh, they gave me a really warm welcome. On, I mean, all the fans on Twitter and uh, just everybody was pretty warm welcoming. Hmm. And we, you mentioned this before, being somebody who went to the IMG Academy. You know Bradenton well. How much do mm -hmm. you expect that to kind of ease the transition? Because not only is this your first professional offseason, it's going to be your first spring training. Now you go from potentially trying to learn something new out in Arizona to at least you know the area in Bradenton a little bit. Yeah. What are you looking for? Yeah, to I definitely have a lot, of, a lot of friends and a lot of coaches at IMG that can – help with anything and plus the the pirates all all those guys but definitely I, I love the area i've been there for uh the whole senior year so i mean i love the beach and i love uh bradenton and sarasota so it should be a good time what's your number one suggestion going to be for a lot of guys experiencing bradenton for the first time um i'd say try not to try to limit the beach because you really will get burnt out on it <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'd say that, and then um, I'd probably just say keep active and drink a lot of water because it is humid, um, so you're going to sweat a lot. But for the most part, there's there's not too much to it. Yeah, no, I feel like those are actionable uh, suggestions. That's that's pretty good. So, <laughs> yeah. Let, let's go back into what made you a first-round pick last year and what put you on the Pirates' radar and the radars of so many other teams. Um, you made a decision for your senior year to go from – like you said, the the Charlotte area to the IMG Academy, and that's where you really popped off for for a lot of scouts. What went into that decision to transfer schools uh, one year before your draft eligibility was up? Uh, well, you mean you know the summer circuit? Um, 
after the summer circuit was coming to an end, uh, IMG contacted uh, my advisor and kind of basically told them that they'd love to have me and that they'd offer me a scholarship to go there. And so um, I, th- I talked to my parents and they just thought it was the best option because whether I go to the draft, it can be like my college type experience. And then if I go to college, I already have that one year of a college type feel under my belt. So I feel like it was just more a decision for my maturity and uh, my pitching development for sure. I mean, the coaches there were awesome as well. So I had a chance to meet them before I went and I was really satisfied with what they had to say. Mm. And yeah, I feel like going to IMG is almost like going to a junior college in that you yeah, get exactly. to go there for a year and then your stock soars and, and you get drafted. Uh, but what do you, how do you feel like you grew the most after making that decision? What mostly changed about your game or uh, how did you feel like a different pitcher after making that decision to go down there to Bradenton? I just felt like I had more control of all my stuff. I, I feel like back home I was just – I threw hard. That's what I was known for, and I kind of fed off that. But when I went to IMG, the coaches kind of sat me down, and they were like, you need to focus on your secondary pitches and kind of focus more on pitching um, because that's what's going to that's what's gonna take you far. Um, so, I mean, that, that little sit down and telling them that – that's what I want to do, and I want to I want to go up a level. Um, so we had to clean some things up, uh, command and all that type of stuff. So um, that's pretty much what it was. And you've mentioned your secondaries a couple times. And the scouting mm-hmm. reports I've read, it's specifically the slider that a lot of people feel like has turned into basically a plus pitch for you. How did mm-hmm. that develop? What were you doing differently, or what did you pick up at IMG that made that that much of a sharper pitch for you? Uh, well, honestly, I didn't even throw a slider before. Last year was honestly my first year throwing it. So I threw a curveball before, and it kind of started getting slurvy, and I felt like I needed to add maybe one more pitch. So I I tried to separate the slider and the curveball a little bit more. That way, um, you know, I had a little bit more options to go to. Um, but honestly, with the slider, I just started throwing it really hard. <laughs> I, I just tried to throw it as hard as I can every single time and um, just have that little flick of the wrist and, you know, things just worked out and I felt comfortable with it. So um, just started throwing it harder and harder. And I mean, it's up to like 91 right now. So with a good bite. So I, I think that's definitely a pitch that I'm going to keep on to for a while. Hmm. And what do you use as feedback for those breaking pitches? Is it just, hitter feedback you see guys swinging and missing is it the feel out of your hand is it even analytics now with so many things Mm -hmm. available in terms of spin rate and all that what do you look to most when you're trying to determine the sharpness of your pitches yeah definitely a lot of those guys go to like track man and that type of stuff i definitely enjoy seeing that type of stuff but for me it's uh it's mostly what i see what i see that hard break um it's just honestly feeling for me not necessarily uh having analytics and all that type of stuff mixed into it. It's mostly what works against hitters and what I see um, and what feels best for me. Hmm. And you mentioned before, too, that you were mostly known as a thrower, a very hard thrower. Some people thought you were one of the hardest throwers out of the prep ranks going into last year's draft. When did Hmm. you feel that your velocity had ticked up to the point where the draft was a real possibility for you? At what point in high school did that happen? Um, It was honestly – probably like my freshman year where that like even kind of hit my head after I committed to UNC. Um, my, my velocity was 
91, 92 in my freshman year, and then sophomore year it really kind of picked up and into the mid-90s. And that was when uh, my kind of coaches were like, we got to start thinking about pro scouts coming and all that type of stuff. Um, so I think that's when it, my, my weight uh, really increased and just my sh- overall strength, and I, I really matured. Um, so I think that's about when my velocity ticked up and those pro scouts started kind of taking notice. Yeah, and, and you talk about your size there. You're listed at six foot four, two hundred five pounds. It's a, a helpful to have that frame when you're trying to add velocity. Uh, mm-hmm. What was the first moment though where you even surprised yourself with how hard you were throwing? Um, probably honestly not until recently. Uh, so this senior year, my my last game, in my uh, IMG season, uh, I topped out at ninety nine, pretty much sitting upper nineties um, in my last start. So that was when it was like, wow, I really kind of throw hard. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'd say that was probably the moment where I threw the hardest when I kind of realized myself how hard I threw. Mm. And uh, one specific performance I want to bring up from the spring, I- I'm sure people probably talk to you about this all the time, but at the National High School Invitational, you had a seven-inning mm-hmm. shutout that really seemed to fix your spot on the radar in terms of being a potential first-round pick. Take us through that performance, being on that stage, pitching in front of that many scouts, and what you felt like going into it and what you felt like coming out of it, knowing that you would put up seven zeros on the board like that. Um, well, of course, yeah, that was one of the outings where I definitely showed that I could pitch a little bit. Um, but bef- before and after, I mean, before and during, I almost think of nothing. Uh, I feel like my body just knows what, what to do. Uh, so there's not really any mindset except just go and attack. Um and before get ready. Uh, so there's really nothing to that mindset except go after guys and, and get guys out fast. Um, and then after, you, you know, after pitching a shutout, it's, it's a, definitely a great feeling in front of all those scouts at those, at those national events. Um, yeah, it was definitely a great feeling and gave my mom and little sister a hug. And, yeah, it was, it was great. Hmm. So what was your draft day experience like then? Because – being a projectable right-handed pitcher coming out of high school uh, with velocity, you know, you were kind of expected to be around that first-round area. How much mm-hmm. were you sweating it out, and how many teams did you think were possibilities for you? Um, I'd probably say there was a good amount of teams that were possibilities for me. That, I mean, of course, our draft was a little crazy, guys getting picked everywhere. Um, but, you know, I wasn't really nervous. Whatever, whatever happened, uh, going to college or – or going pro was honestly a great option for me. Either way, it was it was going to work out. Hmm. Did you still feel though that pro was probably the route, or was there even a small part of you that thought UNC is at least still an option? Yeah, I, I definitely in the back of my mind thought pro was a, was the route for me, just because I wanted to be uh, in the pro system and just be ahead of the curve, kind of, and just uh, be acclimated to that type of lifestyle. Because uh, I mean, this is what I want to do for my career for a long time. Uh, so. You know, just having that mindset. And speaking of getting acclimated to that lifestyle, uh, the D-backs assigned you to the AZL. You made, I think, six appearances there uh, trying to get used to that. You made one appearance at Hillsborough. Uh, what was your transition like to the minor leagues? What would you consider your welcome to minor league baseball moment? Uh, I actually thought it was very easy to, to come by. I mean, I've been traveling on buses law and, you know, just all that stuff that I did before I even turned pro um, just kind of helped. 
So, I mean, it, it was really easy. All the guys I became really good friends with and really close with, all the coaches as well. So, I mean, they, they made it really easy to just kind of go with the flow. Mm. And uh, like I said, you, you made one appearance for Hillsborough there at the end. You get promoted mm-hmm. off the complex. And then Hillsborough makes a championship run there in the Northwest League. You made one postseason appearance for them as well, I think coming out of the bullpen. Uh, what do you take away from that championship run with the hops and what is it like now leaving that team you get so close to a group of guys you expect hey maybe we can win at higher levels now you're Mm -hmm. part of your second organization already what do you look back how do you look back on that championship run now you know just feed off i mean just having that winning mentality but you know that that team was awesome everybody got along everybody was hanging out together all the time uh just having that team chemistry helps like a lot uh, so I think moving forward, I always want to be a good teammate and just uh, have that good chemistry with all my teammates and um, just be able to have that kind of special bond. Hmm. And somebody you moved over to the Pirate system with was Peg Wero, uh, you know, really talented shortstop, young guy like yourself. Uh, you played a little bit with him uh, in, on that Hillsborough team. What did you see from him? What stood out about him? And how much are you looking forward to still having him as a teammate here in the Buck system? Yeah, I'm. I'm really glad to still uh, be with him. And you know, he's a, he's definitely a great shortstop. He's got good hands, and he's got a good approach to the play. He's been hitting good stop or nonstop at the plate. Um, and then also, he's he came in clutch for the hops uh, a couple times. So I mean, he's a really good player, and I think he can really do some damage. Hmm. And uh, one thing I like to ask guys when they join a new organization, either as a draft pick, a traded player, a signed player, whatever, you are introducing yourself now to a new fan base. And especially, you know, now that you were included in a trade for a major leaguer who had been around for so long, a lot of guys are going to be following your career uh, mm-hmm. going forward. How are you looking forward to introducing yourself to, to Pittsburgh fans? And what do you hope they get to know about you here in the months and years to come? Uh, just that I'm a pretty open guy, and I, um, if anybody wants to come up and talk to me, and I'm definitely open to have conversations and interact with all the fans and all that type of stuff. So I, I love when people come up and talk to me or talk baseball. So um, I feel like people shouldn't be too scared to come up to me. Hmm. What's the biggest question you've ever been asked in terms of your game or just from a random fan watching something or even from a scout uh, what's a question that somebody's asked you in those discussions that stood out? Um, probably why do you do it? Why do I play baseball? It's just there's so many different answers to that question. Um, just being around the guys, just the mental, physical, like there's so many different questions or answers to that get, uh, question. Um, so I, I think that's one of the ones that just gets me and is the most difficult to answer. Yeah, that, that's much better than I imagine some five-year-old coming up and saying, how do you throw that hard? Because that's <laughs> much more difficult answer to provide. Yeah. But uh, well, we'll we'll end on this one. Uh, you are coming up on your first full season. Um, potentially, you know, we don't know where you're going to be assigned coming out of the spring, mm-hmm. but it's potentially their Class A or Class A short season. How would you define a successful 2020 as you look ahead to the weeks and months to come? You know, just – uh, all my pitches developing. Um, if I see them that they're, they're developing the right way and getting better every single day, um, I think that's a successful season. And um, you know, just kind of learning how to mature the pitcher and uh, get guys out and see those little things that those major leaguers see. Um, just kind of trying to question 
all the older guys and just get better every single day, you know? Hmm. And kind of piggybacking on that, what part of your game do you feel like can take that next jump? We talked about the fastball velocity, the slider. What is mm -hmm. the next thing you're identifying to kind of round out your profile as a starting pitcher? You know, I think the changeup is a is a really important piece. Being able to have that that pitch to lefties is a definitely a big um, big piece to the pitching game. Um, so if I can get that down and get consistent with it and find a, a good grip that I like, um, you know, I think that's going to help me dramatically in the in the future. Hmm. All right. Well, Brennan Malone, number eight prospect currently in the Pittsburgh Pirates system. Uh, a lot of helium potentially going into that, going into this first full season. We'll see how things shake out in the next couple weeks. But, Brennan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, good luck heading back to Bradenton and all that's to come here in spring training. Thanks so much for having me. Getting closer to opening day, Benjamin Hill joins the show to uh, continue rolling out. We talked last week about how well, it's been kind of quiet with promo schedule releases, and now I feel like in the last week we've had a ton of them because we obviously jinxed it into action. Hi, Ben. Hello, Tyler Mon, and hello, Sam Dykstra, sitting to my left in the uh, Jim Cott conference room. Yeah. The Cott friends room. The Cott, sure, if that's, if that's the way you choose to go on that one. Um, but yeah, what, what has kind of stood out to you in the last week in terms of getting things organized and promos coming up onto the calendar now? You know, I got to say that I am not, uh, as caught up as I should be in this, uh, important endeavor. Um, I took Monday off and, uh, then each of the last two days I've been more, uh, immersed in getting caught up with other things and, uh, working on a story and I've seen things, you know, flitting past you know, yeah, like flitting past, like, you know, in a movie, like when a real smart guy is like working on like mathematical equations and you see all these like numbers and symbols. You can just say the hangover. Flitting past. Yeah. The hangover. Yeah. There, no, I thought there it was, was that like, scene in the hangover. Mind. Yeah, there is that scene in the hangover. I was thinking of a beautiful mind. I mean, I think the hangover is playing off a beautiful mind. <laughs> Probably. But I'm just saying that's what I've been like the last couple days. No matter your frame of reference, I was <laughs> thinking of something else entirely, which I don't even know. What Rain it was. Man. Either of those. Rain things. Man. Rain Man. That's, might what, have, that's what the hangover is playing off of. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. I'm yeah. just saying this is a cultural trope. So imagine me like that, but with minor league promos, but not really stopping to fully grasp any of them. We had yesterday, we had a Lehigh Valley. Uh, I know you were tweeting about this, Sam. Yes. Um, we've had, you know, Lehigh Valley, as well as uh, fairly nearby Reading, um, you know, is, is very much a Pennsylvania Dutch country. And, uh, you know, both those teams have played on the PA Dutch heritage in their region. And yesterday we had Lehigh Valley, which, of course, you know, started the minor league baseball and food branding trend uh, with their bacon uniforms. What was that, five years ago now, uh, six years ago? A lifetime. Um, it feels yeah, like. a lifetime. Lifetimes ago. Um, you know, so they've always been up on the food. You know, they did the cheesesteaks things before. That That's a different regional thing, you know, playing on the parent club, Philadelphia. Uh, but yesterday they went more for the local Dutch heritage and uh, the Lehigh Valley Fest. How, how do you even say it? Fastnots. Fastnots. And it's not – it's Pennsylvania Dutch, which is really German. Yeah. I got to say. True, but it's PA Dutch. I don't know. I grew up in Pennsylvania and it was always like Dutch country. And uh, there was an, a, a local amusement park or close enough in Lancaster that was Dutch Wonderland. And we didn't call it German Wonderland. I know you didn't call it German Wonderland, <laughs> but knowing what Pennsylvania Dutch is, it's basically German. I mean, just look at the font of this, which is very cool. Yes, it is. It's a very 
it's more Germanic. It's a Germanic font. It, it has uh, Oktoberfest kind of vibes. Uh, but the Festnacht is essentially a Dutch, or Sam would say, German yeah. donut type treat. And uh, they're going to be the certainly the first uh, sports team in history to suit up as the Fastnots. See, I grew up in a predominantly Polish area, and we called them Punchki. Punchki. I have heard that term before. Yeah, they're basically the before. same thing. I have a friend uh, who lives outside of Detroit in a, a Polish area, and it's yeah, that's a big thing out there. Yeah, I lived in a Polish neighborhood for years in Brooklyn in Greenpoint, and. Uh, I would always see the word for that. Yeah, P-A-C-Z-K-I. Yeah, yeah, but I would never dare say it because I never – no, I'm not saying like I'm glad you dared to say it. I'm just well, saying I was always – I lacked the confidence to say it because I knew I would have said it horrifically wrong. And it has that thing that thing at the bottom of the Yeah, the stylized C. Yeah. I mean the only reason I know how to say it is because there used to be – and I'm not kidding – off the mass pike, a giant billboard that th- that would say it's Poonchki season and it would say underneath it, Poonchki. Poonchki? Because like, for like all a, of the uh, Irish of us in the area or Dutch like myself who was like, I don't know how to pronounce that word, uh, they made sure we knew if we were going to go into our local grocery store what we were ordering exactly. But anyways, it's basically just a – donut loaded up with many different flavors yeah so we're gonna have the lehigh valley fast knots it's one of the first um totally unique uh like new for 2020 food brandings uh i believe we've seen this mm-hmm. this season uh we also saw which i think we already mentioned last week but the return of the uh inland empire 66ers and their burritos california burritos thing but that's a, that's a returning thing um anyhow i think i'll be more well versed on uh, a lot of the stuff that is uh recently come out next week for sure even tomorrow I mean, let's just delay the whole podcast because I bet I could talk a lot more about this tomorrow. <laughs> this was a good dress rehearsal. Uh, let's uh, c- come back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. Yeah, but we got the Lehigh Valley Fast Knots and some other things I, I know I'm forgetting. Tell me what I'm forgetting. Twitter, at Ben's Biz. Yeah. I also but, really want to try one of these pastries now. One thing I love about the logo is that the Fast Knot is licking its lips, but it's basically licking itself. That That is a trope mm. in uh, – in food branding for a true. long time yeah. before minor league baseball. Very cannibalistic. Uh, the, yeah, this yeah. Uh, thing in question, this anthropomorphic food in question, you know, loving the taste of itself. And uh, those get pretty grisly when you think about them, especially at a, you know, barbecue places all around the country, especially in the South. You see like a pig like holding a fork and knife, like yeah. super psyched to like basically carve up and eat himself. Um, that is something you should go to a uh, therap- uh, ther- <laughs> I don't know if pigs have therapists, but you should. There's some deep seated self hatred in a pig who would want to do that to himself. The fast knot, I, I think, maybe has a more positive self image. It's more just kind of like, because he's not like he's trying to eat himself and destroy himself. He's more like, mm, I'm tasting pretty good. Yeah, I got some sugar around my lips. Yeah, That's all. Yeah. You know, I'm walking around toting a uh, stylized uh, Dutch or German bat. And, uh, I taste pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm a fast knot. <laughs> there's a uh, uh, carniceria in my neighborhood in which there's, similarly to what you were talking about, Ben, there's a cow painted on the side, uh, and he's holding a knife and fork, and he has like a bib tied around his neck. But the most disconcerting part of it is the back half of the cow's body has like been sliced off, and they have the <laughs> labels for like the different cuts of meat. So he's like looking back at his like dismembered body, and he's like licking his lips, and he's got this smile on his face. I'm like, you've been sliced in half. What is happening here? It's terrifying. 
Now I Do they have a comment box, box or something, a suggestion? <laughs> Drive by and be like, a little morbid with the painting on the side of this building. <laughs> maybe maybe reevaluate this. i got to go take a picture now and send it to you guys All right. uh, after the segment. Right. Well, when you um, get back, we'll continue the segment. <laughs> <laughs> sounds perfect. I'll go now. Um, there's also a story uh, coming to the site by the time you hear this. It is on the site about promos gone wrong, which just the teaser for that story makes me excited for it, Ben. Yeah, you know, uh, I think, you know, tied in with this uh, subject, which I, you know, a, a bit ill prepared with uh, all the, the it's promo schedule release season. And so I was thinking, what would be a good feature? And I'm thinking, well, we're seeing the release of these promo schedules. Um, there's going to be so many of them. And I was thinking, of course, a lot of these are going to get attention. A lot of them are going to go wonderfully. A lot of them will set trends in the industry. But a lot for various reasons will bomb uh, or go wrong, whether because it turned out to be just a flat-out bad idea in the first place or because events outside of your control, out of the team's control happened and you know things just went awry. So uh, the way one works these days, I put out something on Twitter and said, hey, if you work or have worked for a minor league team and you have a story about a promo going wrong uh, you'd like to share, please get in touch. And um, you know, I'm writing this story right now as we speak. Tyler, as he said, will be on the website you know, along with this podcast on Thursday. And uh, I'm already looking at this as a uh, at least a two-part series because <laughs> there's a lot of uh, good stories I've gotten. I'm sure there's a lot of people who have stories who didn't see my initial call uh, to uh, get in touch with the story. If you have worked for a minor league team, uh, if you do or have, you know, please get in touch. Twitter at Ben's Biz, Benjamin.Hill at MLB.com. And uh, I think I'll continue to collect these for a while. So this story tomorrow is no by no means a um, you know any sort of comprehensive overview, but maybe just a, a – a little uh, selection of good, funny stories about minor league promotions that have gone wrong, and they can go wrong in a lot of ways. We have a, uh, you know, story of a helicopter, you know, a post-game helicopter ball drop, um, you know, that went wrong. We have a, uh, a hoax marriage proposal that got a significant amount of backlash. We have, um, you know, some mascot mishaps, um, tarp snafus. Uh, that tied into um, you know the giveaway items. That, well, see, there's so many stories, so many rabbit holes to go down. It is a crazy world um, in minor league baseball. And uh, you know, I was just talking to uh, Andrew Asbury of the Omaha Storm Chasers. He's a promotions manager, and he was telling me about something gone wrong. And I was like, so you know, what's going through your head when all this is happening? And he just said, I don't know, man. Like, welcome to minor league baseball. And I think that's really the underlying sentiment uh, is that when you work in that world, um, you know, it might not be Murphy's Law, but it's not that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. But you got 70 games, you got between any contests, you got giveaways, you got theme nights, you've got celebrity appearances. Things are not going to go according to, to plan. And while it might really be awful in the moment when things don't go well, you know, that's where you get your stories. Uh, if you execute a promotion flawlessly, you're just kind of like, oh, that's awesome. Good night. And, you know, you might not remember it too far down the line. But when things go wrong, that's where the stories come from. And that's where this story from me, MILB.com's Ben Hill, has come from. And I know that these are all over the spectrum, like you said. There's not really one theme. But in talking to teams, and I know a lot of these can't be prevented per, per se, but if there is a theme of prevention, how how do teams keep from these snafus happening, at least on the regular? Yeah, I think a lot of them is to, you know, teams want to do things first. So on one hand, then you're in uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. I think whenever possible, 
to look at, you know, if you have, you know, friends in the industry, your peers to say, hey, you did this or you did something like this, you know, to learn, to check in and learn as much as because you, it's easy to overlook things. You know, there's so many details. Oftentimes, you know, teams are very busy. It's the eighth game of a 10 game homestand. They're understaffed, whatever. Uh, so a lot of it just kind of planning where you're just like, oh, right, we forgot that one element or, you know, if we're going to have a candlelight ceremony, uh, we should make sure it's dark when the game ends, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So what could you do well, you know, plan better? I know, but that's tough when you're saying, you know, like there's 70 games. Even the most detail-oriented, well-staffed, super-prepared, you know, uh, promotions directors and front office staff members are just going to run into problems. Some of it might just be, you know, a, uh, a touring performer who was booked, looked great on paper or looked great through someone else's recommendation and he gets there and is totally weird and the kids don't like him and the animals he brought with them uh, – you know, are, are running all over the field or what have you. You know, a lot of it is just live and learn. Benjamin Hill's stuff is at MILB.com slash fan slash Ben's Biz. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben's Biz and Instagram at the Ben's Biz. Uh, what else is coming up? You got anything else on the horizon that you're uh, overly excited about? Uh, certainly not overly excited about um, <laughs> <laughs> No, right now I think it's a lot of getting caught up. I think this last couple of days has been busy and I uh, – for me, it's a lot, a lot of compiling for, you know, the aforementioned uh, promo schedules and getting uh, this season in order. And then, you know, with the release of the promo schedules, it starts to tie into like you get a better sense maybe of what, you know, road trips may be and everything. So it's just uh, trying to piece uh, all the put the puzzle together right now. But, um, you know, stay tuned is all I can say for that. And I know people are going to stay very tuned, as tuned as they as they uh, possibly can. The most tuned possible. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, and stay tanned as well because it's we're not getting much sun right now. So do your, do your part to be outside. It's a healthy look. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Big thanks to Brendan Malone and to Benjamin Hill. And one more reminder for you that coming up this season, over 90 teams will vie for the Copa de la Diversión Cup in 2020, each with an identity as unique and impactful as its area's Hispanic community. Follow Minor League Baseball on social media at MILB and visit the Copa website at MILB.com slash fans slash Copa to find out more about the initiative's newest members and colorful, vibrant identities. Uh, Wrapping up this week's episode, but uh, I noticed that on MLB Network starting on Monday – is when they begin uh, checking in from spring training camps in the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League. So we are really that close. Yeah, no, I actually got my pass today uh, for the Grapefruit League. I've started to put together some of uh, my itineraries and some of the places I'm looking forward to checking out, hopefully for the first time this year, uh, which will be a lot of fun. I'll release that when I'm locked it in and all that kind of stuff, but uh, it should be a lot of fun here coming up in March is when I'll be heading down there. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're right around the corner from pitchers and catchers. I think a lot of those teams report next week. So we'll be talking about that this time next week. Cannot wait. Uh, and for Sam Dykstra, I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 